Hello, and welcome to Burbriety, the podcast about sobriety, mental health, and wellness for men, women, and the men and women who love them. I'm your host, Derek Bolin. Let's brober up. Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode 10 of Brobriety, the podcast about sobriety, health, and wellness for men and women and the men and women who love them. As always, I am your host, Derek Bolin, and today we are joined by Seth Perry, the vegan pastor. Seth is a recovering addict, pastor, and video creator living in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. He has a master's degree in theology and a bachelor of fine arts in film production. Seth got clean in April of 2010 and has worked as a chaplain in a treatment center, an addictions counselor, a support worker, and has also managed a sober living house. Uh, in his final six years of active addiction, he was a stand-up comedian, which I'm sure uh, he has lots of stories from his time on the road there. He left his life on the stage behind when he got clean. Seth, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. And after reading all that stuff about you, I'm going to jump right into our first question and ask, who is Seth Perry? Yeah, I, I have to say, when I thought about you know who I am, First and foremost, I am a recovering addict and someone who is a dual diagnosis with bipolar disorder that is 100%. The first thing I think about is so much of my identity. And uh, I'm someone who's been clean and sober for over a decade and who hasn't had to go into a, a psych ward for over a decade. And so I'm just someone who has had that as a ongoing symptom in my 20s, always going in and out of the psych ward because of addiction and mental health issue issues. So the other part I think about who I am is I'm also a pastor. That's my career. So I, that's part of my identity. And there's so many different types of pastors. So I'm a progressive Christian with open and inclusive theological values. I'm very passionate about justice for the oppressed. And that's part of my identity, and it has been since uh, since I was a kid. I mean, I departed from from a lot of that part when I was in active addiction. I think I'm also a dog father. I have three dogs. I'm a husband, and I I, I got the three dogs and one wife. So yeah. Uh, I also, I'm a video creator. Uh, went to film school at Simon Fraser University. Um, and that's uh, how I channel my creativity. I always have uh, some need for to be creative, always been creative. And I've been uh, putting videos up on this new uh, YouTube channel since January 1st, 2021. Uh, and I produce videos on the topic of addiction, recovery and spirituality. And what uh, is the, uh, the YouTube uh, channel called for people who want to check it out? All you need to do is search Seth Perry. That's S E T H P E R R Y. You'll find me. I'll be. I'll be the. I'll be the one that you'll. You'll find because I'm actively putting up videos. Uh, yeah, and and you'll notice me. I'm the one with the beard. I'm. I'm the guy with the beard. It's definitely prominent. I was binging a lot of your videos last night. Definitely love your approach. They're very like digestible. They're not too heavy. They're not overtly preachy. And your approach on those is is basically to take a look at an issue. And then you also in it's this meta thing where you step outside and critique your own response to it. Absolutely. I think uh, I really wanted to be able to, I guess, model humility and uh, give myself a chance to answer a question completely raw without 
preparing it all and then s spend time researching what I actually talked about to, and, and maybe correct some of the things that I said in this, in a one minute segment that where I just talk right off the top of my head about a, a particular addiction recovery or spirituality issue. And then, yeah, model, model a little bit of humility and also take time to really pick apart what I've said, what I believe in and why I believe what I believe. Love those. Definitely go check them out for sure. And that's a, a nice lead into our standard question on this podcast on Brobriety. Our goal is to define what it means to be a man in the, the modern era. And to get there, we usually like to start by taking a look at where our ideas of manhood started and what influenced those. So I'd love to ask you, Seth, like what were your earliest ideas of being a man and what kind of shaped those for you? I think what I like the way I want to answer this first is to just say, what did, what did I find out what didn't work for me as being a man really from, from growing up, what were the things that I adapted that I needed to get rid of? And so first of all, I think that, uh, what I learned was that, uh, not sharing my feelings doesn't work. Uh, that was a part of masculinity that I, that I thought was tr true. Uh, but it's often related to manhood. It just never worked for me uh, in, in the long run. I, I have to be able to talk about my emotions. So that's that's one part that I think uh, being an adult male, growing into adulthood, uh, talking about my emotions has taken me so far since I started doing that uh, about a decade ago. The other thing was keeping things bottled up. Uh, I, I used to think that that was a sign of strength maybe, uh, so comments, thoughts, and just general communication. I didn't think that I needed to know how to communicate politely with people. Uh, I think that I was quite an arrogant person uh, before I came into recovery. What I've discovered really is, is that uh, I have to have respectful ways to have dialogue with people, proper ways of communication, uh, proper ways of, of, of expressing myself, and I, I, I still will remember things that I did when I was in university where I'm still dealing with the shame of that just by talking over people and uh, saying things that were just uh, completely out of left field all the way through university in lectures and in classes. I was that guy. I was the guy that probably rubbed most people the wrong way and caused a lot of eye rolls. So I really had to look at look a lot at myself and and be prompted and go through counseling and, and work on on those communication skills. Another part that ties in with that is not listening. I thought that I didn't really have to listen to people. And I have to be able to listen in my life today. I'm married and learning how to listen is very important in a uh, relationship. And this is my biggest area of personal growth. It's my greatest weakness, the listening part. And really, throughout my day, I spend most of my life professionally. That's what I should be doing, listening to people. And I do do that. But, it, you know, it's something at home. When I get home, I need to be able to listen to my wife to ensure that I'm maintaining that relationship. Uh, so basically, when I was growing up, to talk about that part of it too, I learned a lot about how um, how to act 
by uh, learning from other people in my family. And uh, I, my dad didn't have a problem with alcohol, uh, but he didn't talk too much. I love him and he's grown a lot since then, but uh, he just didn't talk about difficult things and emotions and, and, and feelings and all that were part of that. And I also learned from the alcoholics in my family, my uncle, my grandfather, and a few other members of the family that also have addiction issues. And uh, uh, they, I think they were smart, Alex, <laughs> I guess is the nice way to put it. Uh, you know, I learned a lot of how to use sarcasm from, from them. And, you know, I, most of the time when I was with them was at family gatherings and, and they were drunk and I really looked up to them. So, um, yeah, that's, that's what, that's what my experience has been in my life. Do you find that that sarcasm, uh, and that's something that I leaned on heavily and I still have a tendency to do it is like using sarcasm as this buffer against having to be vulnerable or open or honest, or maybe communicate in the way that, that we should be communicating. Or like you said, you were a stand-up comedian for a while. So using humor as a way to deflect those raw or real or vulnerable emotions as well. Yeah, I think that I dealt with insecurity by covering it up with sarcasm. And I think that being the class clown or that type of person, you are maybe compensating for the insecurities of maybe being the heartthrob or being the jock or being the edgy bad boy or whatever to cover it up with. And, and part of that, I mean, very popular with me was sarcasm. And one of the things as a comedian in the scene... I used that a lot to cut down other comics and a lot of them were females. And, and so that is a, a really embarrassing part of my past where I really held this belief that women weren't fun, funny. And, and it was a really toxic environment at, at the time in uh, between 2000 and 2004 and 2010 and sarcasm was a part of that. And it, it, I had I, I, I remember having one-on-one -on -one conversations with some women comics back in the day. And all it was was me addressing my insecurities in a really unhealthy and destructive way. Yeah, absolutely. You're coming up on 11 years sober now, which is like massive congratulations to you. Um, that you. is that is a huge accomplishment. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your journey to sobriety, if you're willing to share and, and whatever you're willing to share. Maybe starting at the beginning, like when did you start drinking or, or using and what brought you to substances in the first place? So... Uh... I went to Catholic school and uh, I was, I had bought into this whole, uh, I guess I'm not going to drink. Uh, I was on board with, with uh, not using drugs. Um, but something just flipped when I was about 15 and I was always looking at my brother come home late at night. He was rebellious. He was listening to, you know, rock music, pull up in front of the house with his girlfriend and they'd been out and I was like, I want that. You know, I'm this kid who's wearing a uniform, going to school. I want that. I want long hair. I want the rock music. I want to be a rebel. And he, I know he does drugs and he drinks because he got in trouble for that. And I want to get in trouble with mom and dad. I want to kind of get back at them a little bit, I guess. 
And I channeled it in, in that way. And so I, I began to seek that out. And so at 15, I experimented. And when I finally like got a buzz, I was hooked immediately. You know, uh, the first time that uh, I, I smoke weed and, and, and inhaled properly, I guess it was just I, I suddenly became the chaotic, hilarious center of attention. I was funny in ways that I could not imagine. And people were laughing and people knew me as this entertaining guy. It was it, I was center stage, right? And, uh, and, and that was everything I'd ever wanted to be all those comedians that my best friend and I watched on Friday and Saturday night when we'd have sleepovers and stuff that seemed like that was happening, you know, and it all, it all came back to that first time that, that I smoked weed and, and suddenly just became popular for that reason. But I kept chasing that high though. I find that such a common thread, I think, with a lot of the people I've interviewed on this podcast and me as well. It's like we start off because that feeling we get when we get high or drunk for the first time is almost like it's like acceptance by proxy. Like we feel accepted by people for the first time in in a way that we've been desperate for due to the circumstances in our lives. And ultimately, I think... And I'm sure that's normal to an extent for a lot of a lot of teenagers. Like I don't if you don't feel like an outsider at some point as a teenager, you're lying. Like I'm just I'm convinced. Absolutely. I'm convinced that every there's not there should not be a teenager that feels fully comfortable and confident. But I think for a lot of people, whereas people will grow up and grow out of that and kind of grow into themselves and learn to accept themselves more with a lot of addicts, we end up stuck in in that state where we end up completely reliant on on drugs or alcohol or whatever else in order to fill that hole in ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. Home was not like it, a great environment. Like it was a very strict environment and drugs were so totally the opposite of that, you know? And people saw me in a way that that was completely counter to what my very straight laced parents were. You know, I could behave in ways that I couldn't at home. Yeah. So it was more of a release for you then. Oh, was it ever? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. So you started started getting high, started drinking in in high school. What kept you coming back after that? And what took you to the point where you like finally realized it was between you as a teenager and April 2010? Walk us through what that looked like for you. Yeah. So first of all, what brought me back was the feeling and that warm feeling of escape and how music sounded and how easily I could drift off to sleep and um and how together i felt in groups of people you know and and uh, it was a very warm feeling and i felt accepted but you know what it ended up lasting not that long i think that it became a problem just over a year in so at age 16 i couldn't sleep like it, 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 the, the early stages of bipolar disorder were starting to crop up. So early symptoms, disturbed sleep pattern, uh, a little bit of confusion during the day, um, some mild forms of mania. And so I, I was involved in, in drama and I had no, no real boundaries or anything. Absolutely everything I could do that had to do with film, television or drama at 
my high school, I was doing, I took it on and I was smoking weed during those classes. And I would be at the school until about 9 PM at night, most nights of the week rehearsing. And at 9 PM, I'd go out and uh, I'd get a ride home with a friend, but we would, I, I, I would outsmoke everybody there for the purpose of smoking so much that I could go home and then just go to sleep. But then it just stopped working. And it was just complete insomnia that led into full-fledged mania by the time I was 17. And oh, wow. my dad had to step in to, to talk to the superintendent to get me graduated from school. And my dad bailed me out big time. My dad was an administrator at a local university, and he kind of bailed me out because my grades had gone out the window, and I was not sane at that time. So there was an academic loophole that got me graduated. And so that was the first big kind of crisis in my life. And after that, what happened was I fell into a depression. I was given pills for the first time and nothing really to treat bipolar disorder more to treat the anxiety so it was uh it was i was given benzodiazepines and so those ended up being another substance that i became dependent on on and off for for another 12 years and it was a sad time for me right after high school and I eventually got into theater school at Douglas College in, in New Westminster. And then I, my mental health was not stable. I got myself into university at Simon Fraser University. Still a completely chaotic life. I think that at that time I was working at a nightclub, working as a line cook, going to film school, probably sleeping an, av an average of three or four hours. And that led up to my first hospitalization, which was right before graduation of university. So oh, wow. it, it repeated itself, right? And so I was hospitalized for quite some time, for about seven weeks, right around the time of university graduation. So that was the first big, major, major crisis. Yeah. So you want me to keep going and all the way up until uh, April 2010? Yeah, I mean, so it sounds like you kind of on on one hand, you saw early on that, like, maybe the substances were exacerbating your mental health symptoms. But at the same time, at least um, superficially, it appeared that they were helping you to manage them, which is probably something like, uh, it sounds like you might have believed that. So how did that kind of keep developing over over the next few years? Well, yes, the attempts at management really turned into terminal stage addiction after that point, really, uh, because all up until that first crisis where I was hospitalized, I was kind of managing and self-medicating. At least I would be able to function and go to school. Um, at this time, I was performing uh, as an amateur comedian and then eventually transitioned into being a professional comedian, but every everything else in my life was rather chaotic. And there were times where, uh, you know, in between the ages of, of, of 25 and 29, which were the last four years of active addiction, where um, there were periods of 10 months where I just like went full on into exercise to, to manage my addiction. But once that fell off, then uh, I'd 
go into the depths of, uh, of different substances. And so I started using uh, harder substances. Cocaine became my, my drug of choice. And uh, once that happened, the last three years of my addiction, then it was uh, pretty much hospitalization every year in December because of drug-induced psychosis related to cocaine use. Yeah. Man, that must have been, uh, must have been tough on you. It was horrible to watch professional relationships crumble because I had a lot of promise. That was disappointing, but the relationships with my parents and with my friends, those went completely out the window because the only thing that mattered to me was cocaine at that point. Yeah, absolutely. It was the next fix. There was no uh, question when I'd wake up, what am I going to do today? The only thing that I would do would be get up at 5.30 in the evening, head down the street to my dealer, and then eventually get to the comedy club to perform. And I maintained that for a while, but it completely fell apart when, when I finally got clean in 2010. Yeah. So how, I mean, that's how you had been living for a while. How did you finally hit the point where it was like, okay, I, I can't do this anymore. It's time to get clean. What brought you to making that decision? So what happened was the December before I got clean, I made it out to Christmas, family Christmas. And uh, we were at my grandmother's house and I spilled a beer and it sprayed all over the wall on this oil painting of my mother that was done in the 60s. It was like a painter came out and did this painting of my mother when she was about eight years old. And I completely ruined the painting. And my family was like, this is it. This is the end. You can't come to family gatherings anymore unless you get help. So I think that says a lot about addiction and pride, especially kind of pride for men. We, we don't want to accept help. And so I waited until April to finally make the call to the family. And what it took was a complete physical shutdown. My body was done with the amount of alcohol I was drinking, the amount of cocaine I was using. I had a complete, complete shutdown. I was sick at a level that I've never been sick in my life. And I was on that couch and I said, my only hope is to call my mother. And so I met her at a Denny's and she asked me and I was honest with her and I just said, yes, I'm using cocaine. That's my problem. And I need help. That offer, is it still on the table? Because I, 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 I want to get help. And that's what happened. Yeah. Literally your body saying no, like physically saying no more of this. Like, absolutely can't, can't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I'm going to say that a lot of people probably come to that moment and they make the decision to get clean and then they relapse or they fall back into old habits or they just they just can't stick with it what what kept you going like what motivated you to to stay sober and and stop you from falling back into those habits what helped me the most was surrounding myself with the right people and getting rid of one really bad habit and that was to find another girlfriend to solve my problems uh that was a, a thing that everyone in my family was always concerned about seth gets a little bit stable 
And then he finds another girl because he hates being alone. But the people that surrounded me were, you know, I went into sober living after I went through treatment. And if anyone has the opportunity and has offered that, uh, it worked for me. And it worked for me because I was around a bunch of people that were at my same level. They were trying to figure things out after a complete massive life change in entering a life of sobriety. And that what worked was just following their example, learning from their mistakes, listening to them and living in community with them. And that solidified a foundation for me and gave me confidence to move forward and to start helping other people. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, uh, you know, figuring it out together, right? Like not, not feeling um, like you were necessarily alone or, or struggling through it on your own or, or having people like a lot of times in, in those situations, I think it can be um, you have the, the addict who is in recovery, but they're, you know, they're using resources like therapists or family or friends or people who don't really necessarily understand them or don't relate to them. And almost like there's a hierarchy, the addict feels like they're down here and their support system is up here. Mm -hmm. Whereas uh, I think it's really important a lot of times to like, yeah, surround yourself with people who know what you're going through and, and are, have experienced the same things or something similar. Uh, and that's, uh, that can be really, really beneficial in, in helping, helping people climb out of it. Yeah. And there, the, the important thing was there were other men that, you know, I was spending time getting to know on a level that I'd never known before, because before a lot of the time, uh, it was either, you know, competition, like I would either see like, there's guys outside of my friend group, and they're just they're, they're competition to me. But this, this was a way of people sharing what they knew with me, sharing their tips, things that worked for them people willing to listen to me who didn't even really know me. They just knew that we had something in common that was we're recovering addicts. Right. And, and I, I mean, I, li I lived in Nanaimo, BC. That's where I, uh, where I, I got clean and I lived for seven years. I relocated out of downtown Vancouver, which was the worst possible place that I could be living. And, you know, I just, uh, I up and left to treatment with two duffel bags and left a whole bunch of my personal belongings behind. And, and, and I had to, I had to leave that environment and, uh, and find an, a completely new support group. Yeah. And it worked for you. And now you're, uh, yeah, almost, almost celebrating 11 years. So uh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> that's an amazing achievement. And I would love to talk to you. So you initially reached out to me. And I really wanted to get you on the podcast because, uh, A, you're a pastor. So after all of that, after addiction, after recovery, you went and uh, mastered in theology, and then you became a pastor. And the way you described what you do is that you take a just a broad spiritual approach to recovery. So you help people in recovery develop their spiritual side in an inclusive way. So you're not like strict denominational. You're not, you have to believe in in this God or this higher power specifically, but you just help people 
uh, develop their spiritual side. I would love to know what role spirituality played in your journey to sobriety, because it sounds like you, you had grown up in the church, you had grown up surrounded by spirituality, and then you ended up coming back to that in sobriety. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I came into treatment and I heard people talking about spirituality and God. And I was like, mm, yeah, uh, I'll, I think what I will be doing is my own way of doing this, you know, and pretty much all the way through treatment, which I stayed in treatment for five months. I, I, I didn't make too much progress in terms of spirituality. I think I was uh, really open to um, the concept of community and learning from, uh, you know, a group as a higher power. And that's about as far as I got. I just wasn't willing to go any further. And part of that had to do with, I had a lot of qualms with organized religion and, you know, and I thought that organized religion was pretty closed minded. So then out of nowhere, I'm living pretty close to the treatment center and some of the guys in the treatment center wanted a ride to church. Uh, so I just said, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll start driving you to church. And I was about six months clean and it was your typical church with a rock band and a praise music. And the theology was pretty vague and uh, I didn't really know what the pastor really believed in. And uh, I was wondering, like, you still believe in all that exclusive stuff, uh, you know, all that, all those pitfalls of Christianity. And then a pastor dropped a sermon and he was like criticizing Buddhism, Islam, Sikhism and Judaism. And I was I wasn't impressed. And I, I, I was like, OK, I got to rethink this whole thing. And uh, that wasn't the spiritual journey I wanted to take. So one day I'm just like visiting my dad. And in the morning, he's like, you've been going to church. Why don't you come to church with me? So I go to church with him. And then I go and it's the church I grew up in, the uh, a Lutheran church, pretty progressive uh, theology and everything. And then the pastor says, well, that's great. Uh, why don't you go to the church where you live, the Lutheran church? And I did. And when I went there, I met a pastor who ended up becoming a really close friend of mine and his former um his former uh, profession was he was a the national chaplain for corrections canada and he's so he was talking about working with people on the inside and he was talking about working with uh, a group of people in a chapel sermon uh and they came up to him after after his preaching and they said you know what we don't want specific prisoners worshiping at the same time that we did and he, it was a group of murderers and they said we don't want the sex offenders to be in this in the chapel with us with us at the same time and he said well i can't do that because you have to leave your labels at the door and i was like knowing prison culture i said that is one of the most ballsy things that i could ever think about saying to an individual to someone who's in for a, a murder conviction and so that really inspired me to think about if there's labels and if we're able to really work and uh, inspire and, and give meaning to people who are even on the inside where there are divisions and we're able to bring people together in that way. Well, that's, uh, that's a profession that I think I could try 
And so that's where it all started for me, that moment. And so soon after, uh, and we say there are no coincidences, you know, uh, I went up to the pastor and I said, you know what, I I think I want to become a pastor. And he already knew that I must have already been interested. And he said, well, that's interesting because a recruitment group from the seminary is coming by in about three weeks. They came by they wouldn't stop calling me. They, they got my number and they said, there's lots of, uh, there's lots of scholarship money. Uh, this is something you can do while you work a, work a job. And they kept pushing me. And two years later, then there I am in, in seminary working to get my master's degree. And uh, five years later, then I got my master's degree. Uh, I would have never dreamed that I had all those experiences as a pastor and doing my chaplaincy training in a hospital, you know, that I would be able to be with people in the last moments of their life in the intensive care unit, or to be with loved ones who are in the emergency room who have just lost a loved one, and to be able to gather them together and start the grieving process with them. I I didn't think that I was capable of doing that, but someone who believes in a higher power, well, someone had plans for me upstairs, I guess. And, and, you know, I, I thought that the only thing I was good at was stepping out on stage, telling jokes, you know, and, and suddenly I'm, I'm doing this kind of stuff. And so I I didn't think I was prepared, but I, I really was. And that's really what my journey has been like. That's an incredible story. And you definitely have run the the whole spectrum and, and come back in your recovery to just a, a life of service and, and giving back, right? I would love to know how your spirituality has changed in, in sobriety, like how throughout your recovery journey, what you talked a, a bit about what spirituality looked like, but maybe in even in later recovery, like since you became a pastor, what does spirituality and what does a spiritual practice look like to you now? I think that simply put, the more that I study, the more that I experience, the greater that I doubt things. I think that people should not be afraid of not understanding things. If there is mysterious stuff or confusion, it doesn't mean a lack of faith or belief. It doesn't mean that you aren't doing your spiritual practice properly or not. And this always happens to me when I'm working with people in hospital settings. And this was just last week. One of the people that I work with in the hospital, and and it comes down to this existential question of like, what happens when I die? Have I done enough in my life? Am I doing enough? And someone gets to a point of complete doubt. And that's not a bad thing. Spirituality has become now more about being more comfortable with not having the answer and continuing to search for the answer. I think we need things like paradox in our life. We need unanswerable questions and we need to be able to willing to listen and and have dialogue about these kinds of things, because if we had everything figured out, then 
life would be very boring. And when something unexpected would happen, we wouldn't have to fight to see where the goodness is in that moment. And especially, this is the thing that I have discovered in my practice. I went into studying and getting my master's degree thinking that becoming a pastor was going to be about sharing the goodness in the world and bringing positivity to people. But then it turned into showing people that God exists in suffering, that in a moment where you are completely lost, that higher power has not just disappeared in your life. Actually, in that moment, higher power is might feel closer than ever if you just take a moment and listen and look. And that has been a huge, huge discovery for me. And uh, and I was I was kind of doing things backwards, and I was writing. I was really just trying to see the world through rose-colored glasses as a pastor when I came in in my first year or so. But my professor said, you got to be able to make sense of the madness in the world for people. And that's often what my work is with people. Do you think that's how it shows up, especially when you're helping people in recovery to maintain or develop sobriety? Like, And this is something that I've noticed through a few of my conversations with people. And it's something that's really piqued my interest too, is that because my journey was kind of similar to yours in that I grew up Roman Catholic. So when it came time for me to, in recovery, I went to a couple AA meetings and part of the program, they're very dogmatic about the the higher power thing. And I heard that and it was just like the spiritual cynic in me was just like, thanks, no thanks, not my thing, like organized religion dislike it strongly for the same reasons you do. I'm going to I'm going to pass on all of that and I'm just going to figure out my own sober path. So now that I'm a, a little further along and a little wiser, I'm starting to think a lot about how does connecting to a, a higher power or a higher purpose or acknowledging that yeah, these things are all connected? How does that contribute to recovery? How does it help people stay sober? How does it help them I guess have a more meaningful recovery? Yeah, I think what it is, is that it will be unique for everyone. That's one thing that like, you can get people excited about. And it really it doesn't matter where you end up like, and that's even for me, that's even if someone ends up being like, I end up becoming a fervent atheist, or, or I have agnostic beliefs. Well, go through a process of figuring that out and coming to that point of conviction, like do do the work around that so that you can have some solid beliefs that you have, uh, you know, an understanding uh, of the world because there's so much out there for, for a person. So the first part, part that I can promise an addict is if you, if you want to do, go through a process of self-discovery and, and uh, eventually possibly seek spiritual uh, direction. Well, I think that the first thing you, you should do is get excited that you're on a unique, unique journey of belief and discovery for yourself. Uh, and then secondly, when you do establish your beliefs, you have to understand that as the way that you're going to understand the world, the way that you're going to make meaning out of the eventual hard times, 
as much. Yes, it will apply to the good times, but if there's one thing we can guarantee in recovery is that there are going to be some hard times coming up. And so, yes, you need to rely on community. You need to rely on uh, a foundation that you built of good habits. I always say you need to, if you need a psychiatrist, you need a psychiatrist. If you need a counselor, you need a counselor. If you need a psychologist, you need a psychologist. And you should have a, a doctor. So you have the, that as a foundation as well. But then, yeah, you should be exploring belief. Because even a doctor, I've had plenty of conversations with doctors. And there's been times where I've been a, ch a chaplain in a hospital setting where I've prayed with doctors before people go into heart surgery and stuff like that. Uh, doctor, some, some doctors have intense spiritual beliefs and it's because they need to make sense of the things that, that don't initially make sense. And in recovery, things are going to come your way that just don't make sense. If you're going to grow and you're going to change, which is a perpetual promise to everyone in recovery, that if you're recovery, I, I, I identify as a recovering addict. When people talk to me, that's what I say I am because it's a process of perpetual change. I, I, I can't stay in one place. I need to progress. And, and what will happen is I'm going to go through some low, low points. And, uh, and that's when I need to use the tool uh, of my own spirituality to make sense. So basically, that's that. Yeah. I love that. Just, yeah, accepting the hardships. And I think that's one thing that people in recovery in particular are good at just acknowledging that, yeah, there's there's hard times. Those exist. We've lived through a lot of them. Um, and I love the lens of looking at it like spirituality is our ability to look at those things and either make sense of them or if we can't make sense of them, extract some meaning from them. And honestly, just hearing that, I'm like, okay, I think... <laughs> I think I want to work on my, my spiritual side a little bit now. Yeah. So for anyone who's listening to this in various stages of recovery, or maybe not even in recovery, who haven't intentionally built a spiritual practice or developed their spiritual side, and as you may have gathered, this is very like asking for a friend of me, but what would your advice uh, be for them? What are some practices that can help people get in touch with their spiritual side and then really develop it and start building that spiritual muscle. Yeah. So number one, the first thing, if anyone's thinking about developing their spiritual muscle, the first thing is understand humility. The most important spiritual concept that I've ever been introduced to. And I was introduced that, to that in, my, in recovery from people who'd been in for a while. And it is taking yourself off of the pedestal. You know, you, you, you do not need to think of yourself as invincible. You do not need to think of yourself as more intelligent than someone who needs to get help. You need to take ego and everything that you might perceive about yourself and just take a moment to take that perspective to be grounded. Step one, I think, be open to other people's ideas and perspectives. And the other part of it is a very practical thing for anyone. Right at the beginning, study philosophy. That is the biggest thing that I can say to anyone 
because it doesn't matter who you are, if you already have a faith or if you are resistant to faith or if you have no idea and you were never raised with any organized religion. So there's that's a whole spectrum of people from the people who have everything figured out religious-wise to people who are completely opposed to spirituality and everything in between. Studying philosophy, starting with the very easiest introductory reader or go on YouTube. There's so many different philosophy videos on YouTube that you can get a decent philosophy education from people who will explain things in three minutes in very simple concepts of beliefs. And you will find something in there that will that will pretty much appeal to your specific personality and to your worldview and to your history. So much of what we crave spiritually has to do with our past and our traumas, where we've been, our family, all of that. It's, it's all in there. And so if you start working that muscle, you'll go places, I think. You got to understand, why do we believe the things that we do? Why do I believe the things that I do? Study the concept of belief. And, and that, is, that is probably the best launching point for anybody, I think. Yeah. That is really, really great advice. It's funny because in recovery, I, I think a lot of people's journey is like, okay, you start off, you're an addict, and then you get clean, and then you're clean for a while. And then you start wondering, okay, well, why am I the way that I am? What made me this way? And then you start doing the work there. And then you start thinking, well, okay, why is everyone the way that that they are? What's that all about? And then you start thinking, why is everything like, why is this world the way it is? And mm -hmm. how does that operate? And and maybe that's a very layman's terms view of it. But like, uh, maybe that's how the the spiritual journey de develops in for people in recovery. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think that you have to examine and, and discover who you are at your core, right? Before before you do you do any work spiritually too like uh, i don't i don't think i knew who i was when i got clean you know is that is that the same for you did you have a oh yeah 100 percent. because i spent my entire adult life in active addiction so that i didn't have to know myself like mm -hmm. i i just wanted to not have to worry about who i was so yeah by the time i i got clean like i i had no idea who i was at all mm -hmm. yeah um, so I love your approach. I love that it's inclusive of most things. And I love the very simplistic approach to, to just start developing that, that side in people. How do you help people develop or, or get in touch with their spirituality? Like what are, what are some things that, that kind of you help people to do regardless of their belief system? How do you help them key into that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of the times people come to me and they're like, this is the mess from my past. Uh, and I don't even know where to begin. And uh, it, it's it's been so confusing with me because this is how I rebelled against my past, which is a lot of what I did, you know. And uh, and now I'm and now I'm at this point in my life. I'm clean and I'm wondering. And so I I start with this. I'm like, what are you passionate about? You know, uh, what what are your what do you believe in terms of like justice? 
and ethics and values? What are your core convictions and where are they coming from? So that that has to, you know, that has to start something in an individual and it normally and it normally does. And that is a very personal way of looking at this system of belief that people have. Because uh, a lot of people, when you say like, oh, okay, so what's your passion, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, what, what do you believe in terms of right and wrong? It has to do with some story that really happened in their life, it has something to do that's tied to their identity. And, uh, and then ethics and values, that often has to do with things that they've witnessed, things that they've been a part of. And so there's a, a real healing process in that because working with me in developing someone's spirituality, it's always a confidential space as well. I say, you know, when you're working with me, I'm a clergy person. And so nothing leaves this room as long as no one is in direct harm. You can admit to me that you've, you've committed murder and that stays in this room as long as no children have been harmed and that, and, and as long as no one is currently in any danger at this point. And I, I just put that out there when we're going to dig deep. And so then you can start understanding how people have created lenses that they see the world through because of their history. And that's why I always say it's a unique spiritual path that people take. And, and, why I believe that is because there has been a lot of dogmatic perspectives, like you were talking about your Catholic upbringing, where things are prescriptive, where someone says, this is the theology that a certain amount of white people, white men figured out years and years ago, and we dictate this as being the way that we practice and believe in our, in our morals. And that, that doesn't work anymore for me and for a lot of people. And, uh, and so that is why I practice it in, in, in that way. Yeah, that's where it has to start. I love that. Do you still encounter people who are, who are very, I guess, spiritually resistant? And do you find that that's usually because of their, their past experiences with organized religion? Or, or do you find most people are, that you work with are, are receptive to developing the spiritual side of them? I think that I encounter people because I talk to people in all areas of my life about my career. And, uh, and, and I have very good friends, but we all start at this point where they say, you know, what do you do for a living? And I'm a pastor. And eventually we have a conversation with that. So people on my soccer team or people, people that, uh, you know, play basketball with me or whatever, it comes down to a point where they're like, Hey, I got a question for you. And then we start talking about what kind of pastor I am. And it ends up having to be do with them having a bad experience in their past. And so the, it, it's always an opportunity with me. However, I think if anyone is in a spiritual care type of role in whatever denomination or whatever, you know, and I've worked with, with folks in uh, that are indigenous healers as well. 
uh, with elders um, in in a period of time where I worked with a with an indigenous organization, uh, a treatment center, um, and so all different types of beliefs. Still, there is conflict with people that they cannot get over, and I really believe that. And I, and I think I need to not be too proud over this that some people will not want my help at all and i think that it is i think that, it, that it's healthy and it's something that i don't take personally and that sometimes in in christian communities people would say well oh that's a shame that they don't want the help that, that this amazing help that we're we're providing them well and you know, recently I've I have been working locally with with people here in Kingston that are conversion therapy survivors, and some of them do not want anything to do with me, right? Uh, I've been very vocal uh, against conversion therapy, and uh, you know, a few of them are in contact with me in private, but they don't want to enter a church ever, right? Right now, you know, and that's totally understandable. Like, that's, absolutely, you know. yeah. And and I can't be a pastor cannot be proud too proud to do that even though i'm a pastor that i've been vocal on the news against conversion therapy i've been against local organizations and i've spoken to city council here about a ban on conversion therapy i i i should not be lifted up on the shoulders of the lgbt community here in in kingston as, as some sort of hero no 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 uh it all it, it would come back to to humility really that uh, there's a lot of reconciliation that Christians need to do with the world. And that's going to be something that will be done well beyond my lifetime, I believe, because there's so, so, so many problematic things with related to Christianity. And I think that we need to, we need to know that when, what, what it means to, uh, to call yourself a clergy person and how that just can, specifically bring up any type of past trauma with an individual. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a great call out. It makes me hopeful to see clergy people like, like yourself and some of the other ones that I've met who are aiming to make uh, a, a more inclusive spiritual experience for people and, and hopefully start undoing some of that, that trauma or some of that, those deterrents for a lot of people, because, you know, the more time I spend learning about spirituality and thinking about spirituality, the more time I start thinking like, oh, wow, this would have really benefited me like, you know, 5, 10, 15 years ago, instead of waiting until now where I was finally like, okay, like I can separate spirituality from my past experience as like in the Catholic church and start acknowledging that there, there are other options and, and more inclusive and gentle options out there as well. Absolutely. All right. Seth, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. We're going to ask our standard wrap-up question here, and it is, how has your idea of what it means to be a man changed? If you could go back in the time machine and, and tell uh, younger Seth what you would learn eventually about what it means to be a man, what would you tell him? Yeah, what I would do is I would tell myself to slow down. I think I had a lot of expectations on my shoulders. Actually, I had an appointment with my psychologist and we were talking about this today, interestingly enough, that I had such an expectation to 
become a famous person. I think that's what I really wanted in all of my performing. You know, I thought that it was going to be the great escape to get out of my family, get out of the suburbs, become a famous actor, comedian, something, right? And uh, I'm really happy in my shoes today. So telling myself to slow down because there is a lot of personal pressure for some men, uh, young men, when you're coming up and when you're getting towards the end of high school. And I think that some people want to be the next Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, or Jeff Bezos so much. And those are three people, really. And there are many other paths to take. Like, I think that we need to know that there are some really amazing normal people out there uh, that aren't billionaires, that there are some people out there that are not you know, uh, super well known, but are very valuable to people's specific development and growth. And you can find guidance from them. And just really embrace the normal embrace. And by that, I mean, just the humdrum everyday life that many people enjoy and uh, find a way to to just be okay with life. You know, just life. Just the yeah. the boring parts of it too, right? Like Absolutely. it doesn't all have to be glitz and glamour and billions of dollars. Yeah. In recovery, I have been able to just really enjoy having a Beyond Meat burger with my wife at a drive through. Honestly, I really have enjoyed those discussions. And that is something that I cherish. And uh, you know, 17-year-old me would be like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and helping educate us all about the practice of spirituality. If people want to learn more about you or your mission or or what you're doing, where can they find you? Yeah, I would, you could find me on uh, YouTube, first of all, um, just search for Seth Perry, and you can find me all there. And uh, I'm very active in my DMs on my Instagram. So if you uh, want to reach out to me, you can contact me there as well. So those are the, that's how you could uh, contact me throw me a question. I often answer questions on my YouTube channel. Uh, so you can find me there. You can find me active on the R recovery subreddit. I'm all over Reddit. And my username is S-E-T-H-P-R-R-0. So you definitely can find me on Reddit. and I'm there every day as well. Amazing, Seth. Thank you so much. Everyone, if you're looking to develop a, a spiritual practice, I would definitely recommend talking to Seth. I know I am inspired just after speaking to you for the past hour. Thank you again so much for your time. And to all of our listeners, we will see you next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Bribriety. Reminder to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if there's a guest you'd like to hear from, email us at bribriety.podcast@gmail.com or message us at van underscore sober on Instagram. We'll see you next time.